preaching uh, the last uh, part of the beginning of our Roman series. Um, Joe is going to be talking about the Romans. Uh, this letter we've been reading is called Romans, written to the church in Rome. Uh, it would be useful, we think, to have a little background on uh, Rome, what it was like to live in Rome, what it was like to be a Roman. And accordingly, next week's sermon will be PG-13, uh, only because Joe is being polite about it. <clears throat> so uh, if you're thinking about bringing little ones into the service next week, you probably shouldn't. Um, and if you are particularly uh, sensitive to that sort of thing, then um, I don't know, go watch a Quentin Tarantino movie this week or something to, to get yourself numbed up. Uh, but Joe's going to be doing that next week. And then as, as Chris mentioned, we are going to be, after that, going into our Advent series which uh, will involve uh, Isaiah 48 through 53, some prophecies from the second part of Isaiah. Rick is going to be starting us off, and uh, then uh, I'm very excited that on Christmas morning, which falls on a Sunday, so we'll be here uh, in church on Christmas, uh, we will have uh, returning to us Matt Malott. Some of you may remember Matt. He was an intern. Uh, he has been in the intern recovery program for a few years now. Uh, but he's going to come back and uh, preach for us. He actually is finishing up his uh, master's degree out in Ohio. Um, so we're thrilled that he's going to be back with us. And that morning service will be pajamas optional because it is Christmas after all. So uh, <clears throat> there's a good song by a guy named David Wilcox that says, Start with the Ending. Let's remember here <clears throat> how this thing ends, the handy thing about these books is that you can look, you can skip ahead and find out what happens at the end. The very end of Romans, Paul says, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God, be glory forever. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's how he ends. And this is how he begins. Paul, a devoted slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to the flesh, came from David's seed, and who the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we've got some common themes here, don't we? Between what we find at the end and what we find in the beginning. One of them is the fact that this gospel, God has commissioned Paul to preach, involves some things that we might not normally think of when we think about the gospel. Things like the fact that God had promised ahead of time in his holy scriptures through his prophets that he would do what he had in fact done in Jesus. 
And another piece of that that we might not normally expect is obedience. When we started off this series, I started off with the question of what got Paul up in the morning, back in the days before Starbucks. And as we go through this book, we're going to be looking also at the question of what kept him up at night. But what got him up in the morning was the fact that he was called to be an apostle, that he had a job to do, that God had given him a commission, and that Paul, as his devoted slave, was going to carry that out. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And then we've been looking in the last several weeks at some elements of that gospel, as Paul describes them here at the beginning of Romans, again, that we might not necessarily expect. Think about that word gospel. Think about when people have maybe said that they shared the gospel with somebody or that they heard the gospel. Uh, Unless you're thinking about a particular musical genre that involves um, people dressed uncomfortably and singing in multi-part harmony, you're often thinking about things like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Where would you go if you were to die tonight? The gospel being, as we talked about uh, the other week, the, the four spiritual laws is often a way that the gospel is summed up, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, that, he, uh, that, that you, because of your sin, are separated from him, but that through Jesus' sacrifice you can have your sins forgiven, and then if you choose to follow him, that you can be restored in the relationship with God. All of which, as I've said, is true, and please don't miss this point. All of this is true, but it's contained in the much bigger story that Paul is telling here in Romans. Because this bigger story that Paul is telling here in Romans involves the fact that Paul foretold, promised in advance, through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, what he was going to be doing through Messiah. It has to do with a descendant of David. It has to do with resurrection as a vindication of both Jesus and of God. And as we're going to talk about today, it involves obedience. Now, I don't know uh, about all of you, but I know that the word obedience doesn't generate a whole lot of fuzzy feelings for me. Am I alone in this one, right? You look at the cover of your bulletin, you know, that just, when I think obedience, I think some fairly sinister things like that. And I think there are a few reasons why obedience can give us a, an uncomfortable feeling. One is simply that we are fallen human beings, right? We know we have to obey do things we don't want to do because we are inclined by our own fallen nature and by the fact that we are living in a world where the the grooves have already been made. There are ruts in the road that lead us in the wrong direction. We read in the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. You think, well, why would he have to learn obedience? He was 
perfect. He was the Son of God, and he was indeed. But he also learned by the experience of having to drive outside of those ruts, so to speak, having to go off the path that had been beaten to the low road. He learned what it was like to obey rather than to simply go along with the flow. And obedience also, I think, is hard for us because there's a humiliating element to it, isn't there? I mean, if you're obeying somebody, you're placing yourself in a position of inferiority, right? Somebody else is telling you what to do, presumably something you wouldn't have done otherwise, or telling you not to do something that you would have done if you could have. This is true of Paul, too, by the way. Paul describes himself as a devoted slave of Christ Jesus. If your translation of Scripture says servant, feel free to cross that out and write slave, which is a much better way of rendering that word. Paul identified himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, and when he talked about obedience, he talked about obedience in a culture where it was uncomfortable to talk that way. Even the Roman emperor, in the, when he would give a command, he would phrase it as a suggestion or as advice. Now, of course, you know if the emperor is giving you advice or a suggestion, he's giving you a command. But in that context, when things are phrased that way, to be so bald as to talk about obedience in the context of slavery means that Paul is being extraordinarily uncouth, for one thing. But he really is striking to the heart of our own rebellious human nature. We don't like to obey, do we? But there's one more reason that obedience can be rubbing us the wrong way, and that, of course, is the Reformation. One of the reasons that Romans is as important as it is to us as Protestants, and we are Protestants, is that it was Martin Luther's interaction with, his wrestling with the book of Romans, that prompted him to decisively break with the Roman Catholic Church. As far as he was concerned, he was, they were the ones who it was kind of like when Ronald Reagan said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party, they left me. Luther's attitude was that he hadn't left the Catholic Church, that the Church had left the true faith, which is what he was following after all. But in a context where so much of religion had to do with obedience to works, to following rules, what Luther found in Romans, as did other great leaders of the faith like John Wesley, in fact it was reading Luther's commentary on Romans, that brought Wesley to a great spiritual transformation. It's a recognition that Paul is talking here in Romans, as he talks about in Galatians and in his whole work. He's talking about a salvation that comes to us not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. He's talking about a restored relationship with God that comes about not by any effort of our own, but because God has graciously descended and condescended to us. And again, I don't want for a second to deny that, any, that, that all of this is true, that all of this is vital. 
But because this is some of the historical baggage we're carrying, when we hear about things like obedience or deeds or works, it kind of makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up a little bit. But that's what this says. That's what this text says. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the nations, for his name's sake. Now, some folks, in order to soften this, and especially in the Protestant world, will say, ah, well, the obedience of faith, what that means is it means the obedience of putting your faith in Jesus. So it's really not about obedience. It's not about doing the right thing. It's just about sort of obediently putting your faith in Jesus. And whew, dodge that one. Not quite that easy, I don't think. So if we look at some of the background, some of the backdrop here, in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, and I, I apologize if anybody feels like I'm getting a, a jump on the holiday season by doing this, but early in Luke's Gospel, you have the scene of Zechariah, father of John the Baptist. You may remember the story. He went to the temple in order to uh, perform his service as a priest. He encountered an angel on the inside. The angel told him he was going to have a son. Zechariah said, are you kidding? And the angel said, no. And what's more, you now aren't going to be able to speak until he's born. So once John is born... Immediately, Zechariah is able to speak, and he spits this rap that he has been working on for the last nine months. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Again, remember, this is a a priest of Israel. This is a a priest serving in the temple during the first century, where God's people, having finally been returned from exile, where they were driven because of their unfaithfulness, having been returned, they have nevertheless lived for hundreds of years with a couple brief breaks under the thumb of some Roman or some foreign dominating power. And at this point, it's the Romans. They've been waiting for deliverance. And now Zechariah says, it looks like God is coming through to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, this was the hope of Israel. Not just that God would rescue them, but that He would rescue them from the hand of their enemies to enable them to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all their days. It's not just about rescue. It's not just about release or deliverance. It's about deliverance for a purpose. 
deliverance in order then to be able to live in holiness and righteousness before Him all their days. And I won't take the time to go through it, but in a lot of ways, the beginning of Romans is sort of echoing the structure of of Zechariah's song there in Luke. So I think when Paul starts talking about the obedience of faith, we have to understand that against that backdrop. But grammatically, it's, it's quirky. In fact, we don't find this particular way of putting those two words together anywhere else in ancient literature. And so we've got to figure out if, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about obedient faith? Are we talking about faithful obedience? And I think we get a lot of help in this from one of my heroes, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, or sometimes Just Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who was martyred by the Nazis during World War II. He was part of a movement called the Confessing Church. These were German pastors who refused to make the church a wholly owned subsidiary of the Nazi party. The picture on your front of your bulletin is sort of comical. As far as we know, that could just be people taking a vote at some church council meeting. But there are more sinister pictures out there of pastors and bishops gathered together giving the familiar salute to Hitler. Somebody once asked a man named Martin Niemöller, who was another of the pastors unwilling to go along, what it was that would enable all of those good Lutheran pastors to submit themselves to Hitler. And he said one word, pensions. Pensions. But Bonhoeffer was a leader among a movement that refused to go along, even if it did mean losing their pensions, and they all lost their pensions anyway. In his book, Cost of Discipleship, he gives us this memorable phrase that I'd encourage you to think about. Lock this one in and meditate on this one. He says, only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. Only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. See, there's an obedience that comes without faith, right? We all know that. People who are really good at just following the rules. I live with somebody like that. They, they like nothing better than to follow whatever rules are set, and then they feel satisfied because they have succeeded in doing the things they were supposed to do and checking off all the boxes. But this is not a faithful obedience. This is simply obedience for the sake of obedience. And for a long time, that's what religion was like in the West, right? For a long time, you went to church because you went to church. I mean, it's just what everybody did. In fact, atheists would maintain... Uh, memberships at, at multiple churches. They had their name on the pew in the pew that they had reserved, and the polite assumption was that if he wasn't at church this morning, he must be at the other church. 
But as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the uh, phenomenon which he observed in the 20th century, the decline of religion, is that uh, it was a very ambiguous phenomenon. One way of putting the truth would be that the religion which declined was not Christianity. It was a vague theism with a strong and virile ethical code which, far from standing over against the world, was absorbed into the whole fabric of Western institutions and sentiment. Therefore, demanded church going as at best a part of loyalty and good manners, and at worst as a proof of respectability. Hence, a social pressure like the withdrawal of compulsion didn't create a new situation. The new freedom, and here he's talking about the phenomenon that he saw developing in his lifetime where suddenly people felt free not to show up at church. That new freedom first allowed accurate observations to be made. When nobody goes to church except because he seeks Christ, the number of actual believers can at last be discovered. It should be added that this new freedom was in part caused by the very conditions which it revealed if the various anti-clerical and anti-theistic forces at work in the 19th century had had to attack a solid phalanx of radical Christians, the story might have been different, but mere religion, morality tinged with emotion, or the religion of all good men has little power of resistance. It's not good at saying no. So obedience without faith doesn't have staying power. But as Bonhoeffer puts it in his book, there's a problem with a faith that doesn't manifest in obedience. There's a a faith that betrays an attitude of what he called cheap grace. The idea that, well, Jesus saved us, so we're in, so it's all good. So now we kind of do what we want to do. He says, grace is free, but it ain't cheap. A faith without obedience leads us to a situation where really you don't have either because only the one who is obedient believes, only the one who believes is obedient. If there's no obedience, that probably reflects the fact that there really wasn't any faith to begin with. And at the same time, often if we find ourselves feeling like we have little faith, that may be simply because we are not being obedient. Bonhoeffer uses the example of the, the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what, more, what, what, what good thing must I do to inherit salvation? And what does Jesus say to him? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he doesn't tell anybody else to do that, does he? seems he had a certain insight into this person's character. He was somebody who had followed all of his commandments. But Jesus confirms that these are indeed God's commandments, but the young man is once again caught. Bonhoeffer says he hoped to evade once more and re-enter into a non-binding conversation about eternal questions. He hoped Jesus would offer him a solution to his ethical conflict. But Jesus lays hold not of the question, but of the person himself. The only answer to the predicament of ethical conflict is God's commandment itself, which is the demand to stop discussing and to start obeying. Only the devil has a solution to offer to ethical conflicts. It is this. Keep asking questions. 
so that you're free from having to obey. Jesus takes aim at the young man himself instead of his problem. The young man took his ethical conflict deadly seriously, but Jesus doesn't take it seriously at all. He's serious about only one thing. The young man finally hears and obeys God's command. When ethical conflict is taken so seriously that it tortures and subjugates people because it hinders their doing the liberating act of obedience, then it's revealed in its full godlessness as complete disobedience in all its insincerity. Only the obedient deed is to be taken seriously. It ends and destroys the conflict and frees us to become children of God. And that is the divine diagnosis the young man receives. Now, Paul's going to be unpacking this stuff, this reality of what obedience is and what it looks like throughout the course of the letter. And Next year we're going to get to the, part, the famous part in chapter 7 where he agonizes over the fact that he wants to do the right thing, but then he finds himself doing the wrong thing. And then he wants to avoid doing the wrong thing, but then that's exactly what he finds himself doing. Who's going to save me from this, he says. Well, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he raises for us here, early on in his letter, a very important challenge, which is that the gospel is not just about mentally assenting to certain propositions. After all, as James said, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, congratulations. The demons believe that and shudder. The good news of the gospel is that we are liberated, not simply so that we're free, but we're liberated so that we can serve faithfully. We are liberated for the purpose of obedience. And I think Bonhoeffer gives us the appropriate insight into the phenomenon that so many of us know all too well, where we know God's calling us to do something, but we're playing with it on our minds. Really? Does he really want? No, he can't really want me to do that. You think about that. Maybe I need to pray about that some more. Maybe, well, maybe I should go read a book about that. Maybe I could do a study on that. Maybe I could keep kicking that down the road some. Maybe there's somebody here who knows that God is calling her to do something that she does not want to do that she's not sure she can do. And the good news is, this is the obedience of faith, not your own human will. As Bonhoeffer also tells us, and this is so beautiful, those who follow Jesus' commandments entirely, who let Jesus' yoke rest on them without resistance, will find the burdens that they have to bear to be light. In the gentle pressure of his yoke, they will receive the strength to walk the right path without becoming weary. Jesus' commandment is harsh. It's inhumanly harsh if you're resisting it. Can I get an amen? It is hard. As long as you're resisting, it's hard. But his commandment is gentle and not difficult for someone who willingly accepts it. His commandments are not burdensome, as John says. Jesus' commandment has nothing to do with forced spiritual cures. Jesus 
demands nothing from us without giving us the strength to comply. His commandment never wishes to destroy life, but rather to preserve, strengthen, and heal life. So I think often our obedience come, or our failure to obey is simply a manifestation of our lack of faith, our lack of trust that God can, in fact, enable us to do the things we don't think we can do or to stop doing the things we know we should stop doing but just can't. God's grace is inexhaustible. His power to save is unlimited. But we have to call upon it. We have to place ourselves at His service, not at the service of our own desires. What we find is the more we seek to obey faithfully, that the two are two sides of the same coin, faith and works. Only the one who believes is obedient. Only the one who is obedient believes. Let's pray. Lord, some of us have a hard time right now even confessing that we have a hard time confessing. Lord, it's so easy for us to distract ourselves. It's so easy for us to continue asking all the interesting questions and to sidestep the clear command and direction that you give us. I think about the picture of a devoted slave being told by his master to do something. We don't imagine that devoted slave dithering about it or exploring interesting ethical conundrums. We see that slave doing it. If the master tells the slave to stop doing something, we see the slave stopping. We recognize, Lord, that you have called us to be your slaves. You've called us to obedient faith and to faithful obedience. Lord, where our faith is lacking and where our disobedience betrays that fact, we say to you that we believe, help us in our unbelief. Give us the grace to obey faithfully. And as some of us sit here, knowing exactly what it is that we are talking about, knowing exactly the thing that we are doing that we need to stop doing, or the thing we need to do that we are not doing, Lord, give us the grace to be humble, to obey faithfully as your devoted slave. Give us the testimony of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who can say that your commands are not burdensome, 
who know the yoke that is easy. We ask this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his reputation in our lives and in our church and in our community. Amen.